All right, we're looking at Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade away and the Bible says that you and I are like the grass and the flowers that wither and fade away. But it says the word of God stands forever. So let's pray uh, together before we look at it further. Heavenly Father, you know that we need you. We need you even to be able to understand your word. Uh, So would you please be with us? Would you be at work in spite of the, the sin in all of our hearts? Would you be at work in spite of the sin in my heart as the speaker? Would you be at work to change us so that we might actually hear from you and come to know you in your grace and your mercy in Christ? And we ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, on December 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, a a 42-year-old woman named Rosa Parks boarded a city bus about 6 o'clock in the evening after a long day at work. And she went to the back of the bus, uh, to the back section that was labeled, this is 1955, it was labeled uh, colored people. And she sat down in the first row of the, quote, colored section. And after a few stops, uh, as more people got on the bus, the white section in the front of the bus filled up. And so then there were four white people that, that wanted to sit down, but didn't have a seat. Only seats that were left were in the back in the colored section. And so the bus driver, a white man, walked to the back of the bus, and he picked up the sign indicating where the colored section began, and he moved it back a row. And he looked at the four people that were sitting there, and he asked them, told them to get up. Three of those people got up and moved, and Rosa Parks didn't move. Actually, she did move. She scooted down towards the, uh, to the window seat, but stayed in that same row. And he looked at her and he said, you need to get up so that 
these people can sit. And she didn't move. She didn't budge. And he said, if you don't get up, I'm going to have you arrested. And her response was, you may do that. And she didn't move. And she didn't move until the police showed up and arrested her. And took her to jail. And later, uh, speaking about that incident, listen to her quote. She said, uh, quote, When that white driver stepped back toward us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. And she didn't move. She stayed right where she was. And that's incredible. What a great story, right? What a great... uh, It's amazing. Wouldn't it be great to live like that? Wouldn't you love to live your life, to feel like that, that you are, in a sense, unmovable? You know who you are, you know what you believe in, and you are not going to budge. Wouldn't it be great to live like that? If you're a Christian, wouldn't it be great to live the Christian life in that way? Planted firmly, not going to be budged. But if, you're, if you are a Christian, uh, I bet you know that all too often it, it feels like quite the opposite. It's so easy to, to feel like you're giving up ground, like you're being pushed back. Uh, it, it often feels like the world around you, uh, maybe even the people around you, maybe even in the, in the church... And even your own heart are uh, on the attack and sort of trying to push you back. And that's actually exactly what Paul's addressing here in this passage that we have before us tonight. Paul's teaching us, he's in the midst of teaching us what it looks like to live out the Christian life. What it looks like. And last week we saw that he basically said the Christian life is like a race that we're running, and we're running, he basically says, run towards the reality of the glory that's coming for you. And today, in this passage, uh, he, he switches the imagery, and he talks about standing firm. He says, stand firm, like a soldier facing an advancing army. Coming you know, on the attack, and he says, stand firm, and this is how you do it. And so like we say every week, uh, we've said that Philippians, as we've studied through it, we're here, here we are, chapter 4, right? We're, we're almost done. We've said every week that this is a letter that's filled with joy. Paul telling about the joy that he has in Christ and calling these Philippians and calling us to joy in Christ. And we've seen that it's real joy in the midst of real life. And here, what I, what I think we see overall is that Paul says that there's real joy in standing firm. That's what he calls us to. He urges us to and he tells us how to stand firm in our Christian life. So we're going to look at that in three ways. Uh, basically three things that Paul tells us to do to stand firm. To not, not be pushed back. First, we're going to look at uh, how he says to be reconciled. Secondly, he tells us to not worry. And thirdly, He calls us to think. And just so you know where we're going, uh, parts two and three, 
basically we could combine them together and see that Paul tells us to rejoice and then break that down into don't worry and think, but there you go. But the first thing I want you to see is that he calls us to be reconciled. So verses 1 through 3, if you notice, in some ways it's kind of an unusual, uh, unusual passage. You don't see a lot of this kind of thing. He, he calls out these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, which are names that have kind of fallen out of use. <laughs> Nobody's really naming their daughters that anymore. But He calls them out by name publicly. And this was a letter, and it would have been read publicly in front of the whole congregation. And he calls them out. Uh, evidently, they're in some sort of disagreement. And he, he urges them, he says he entreats them, these two women to agree in the Lord, literally to think the same thing. Now, we don't know what it was, what their uh, disagreement was about. It at least appears not to have been some, over some crucial matter of uh, aspect of the gospel. Otherwise, Paul would presumably have come in and said, okay, this is right and this is wrong. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't come in and say, all right, look, Euodia, here's the deal. You need to understand this and syndicate, look. He just calls them both to come to the table and work it out and, and elicits help if, if it's needed. And so for just a second, I want us to think, why does he do that? Why, like, all right, so it's bound to be awkward to do that. Why do you have to go out of your way to get these two women that are having whatever kind of disagreement to, to agree? And I think the, the pretty simple answer is that because it's really important. Right in the first verse, Paul is, he's telling us, urging these Philippians and us to stand firm in the Lord. And he says, stand firm thus, right, in these ways. And the first thing he says is, Euodia and Syntyche, you guys need to agree. It's important. And if you recall, it's not the first time that Paul's talked about this sort of thing. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks uh, earlier in the letter looking at how Paul calls these believers to unity. He says it's inherent. Christian community, you have to be unified. You have to be together. He basically says if you're not together, if you're not unified, then then we're done for. We need each other. I think a great example is 1 Corinthians. If you read through 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and they got lots of problems and some pretty sort of flashy problems. Some big sin. They're doing things like some of the Christians in the church are getting drunk at communion. Um, they're uh, suing each other, taking each other to the, um, to the uh, Roman court. They are, uh, there's a lot of sexual immorality and sort of most notably there's a guy that is evidently sleeping with his mother-in-law. Um, and not only is the church open, you know, just allowing it, it seems to sort of be cool with the church. And so all these problems, and the first thing that Paul addresses when he writes to the Corinthians is the fact that they don't get along. Right out of the gate, church with all those problems, he says, uh, they, they have all these factions, right? It's, it, the church is basically kind of clicky. And that's the first thing that Paul addresses when he writes to them. Why? Because that's their biggest problem. Out of all those things, the biggest problem is the fact that they are not together. Now, why is that? Because he knows that if, if you don't have each other, then you're done for. Um, it, you, I think you can think about it 
unified Christian community kind of like the immune system of your body. If your immune system is healthy, then you can fight off all kinds of attacks. But if your immune system is compromised, then almost anything can get in there and, and do you in, right? Uh, if, you, if you know anything about HIV and then AIDS virus, if you have AIDS, do you know what typically, what it is that ends up killing you? It's typically something like the common cold or the flu. Because AIDS basically breaks down your immune system and then something that you know, folks without it can typically fight off fairly easily, it'll kill you. And that's a great picture, one that I've borrowed from a pastor named Joe Nodenson. That's a great picture of what Paul is saying about Christian community. That if you have to be unified and together, and if you are, you can fight off all kinds of attack. But if you're fractured, anything can get in and undo you. It's incredibly important. If you're not unified, you're missing something of the gospel because we need each other to encourage one another, uh, to remind each other of the gospel, to embody the gospel with one another. And if, we, if we're fractured, then we're missing some point of the gospel. And I want you to notice that's exactly how Paul battles this fractured relationship. He, he really, he in some ways subtly but fairly explicitly reminds them of the gospel. He basically reminds them of who they are. He says, uh, he reminds them that these two women, that they have worked together before. And why have they worked together? For the gospel. He, he calls them to agree in the Lord. He reminds them that their names are written in the book of life. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to get them to remember, look, don't forget who you are. You, you don't agree and you need to. Remember, Remember the whole reason you're here. The whole reason you're here is because you were God's enemy and He reconciled Himself to you in Jesus. And He did it purely by grace. It's the only way that you're even here. He wants them to, to process this fractured relationship through the Gospel. That if God has reconciled me to Himself in Jesus, then, then certainly we can overcome this. So what does it mean for us? Well, one thing that it means is that one of the places that you're going to feel the attack, one way that evil is going to press in on us, it's in the arena of your relationships. You're going to feel, you're going to feel some inertia in your relationships towards fracture, towards division. And you have to be aware of it, and you have to, in a sense, fight to stand firm in that because you need it. It means that you can't just look at a relationship that's gone sour and just sort of let it go. Now that's in a, at least seemingly the easy thing to do. But this means that we have to do the hard work in relationships. You can't sweep it under the rug. We have to deal with it. If you're at odds with somebody else, particularly two believers, if you're at odds with someone in your Christian community, it's a big deal. And we have to address it. We have to move towards other people. You know, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your roommate. Um, maybe it's 
Maybe it's your literal brother or sister or a friend. Or maybe it's somebody that's really not a friend. That you don't naturally click with. But Paul's telling us, the Bible is telling us, that if we're going to stand firm in the Christian life, then we have to be reconciled. And who should make the first move? You should. Right? Notice what Paul says, I entreat Euodia. And then he repeats it. And I entreat Syntyche. It's like he's looking, looking at each one and saying, don't, don't, don't worry about the other one. Don't, don't worry about what I'm telling them. You, I need you to come together. So Paul urges us to stand firm and be reconciled because we need it. All right, secondly, Paul calls us to not worry. He says, don't worry. Uh, and again, really, we could say that the second thing, there are two things that Paul tells us how to stand firm. And the second one, sort of the overall thing, is to rejoice. Right? It's what we see, uh, what is it, verse 4. Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord. So much so that he says it twice. And I say again, rejoice. So how do you do that? Can you just, it might, if you think about it, it might sound kind of strange, like, you know, all right, so I'm telling you to rejoice. Go. Be happy. So how do you do that? Well, that's what Paul tells us. He gives us two sort of overlapping ways because it, it is something that actually we can work towards and, in a sense, develop. And the first of the two things is he basically says, don't worry. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Right? This is another area of attack that you're going to face. Another area in which it's easy to, to find joy disappearing. Uh, what, what were these folks worried about? The Philippians, they had plenty to worry about in a sense. They were worried about, uh, they were worried about the fact that their church wasn't really going like it should, like they thought it should. Uh, they were worried about facing literal persecution. They were worried about their church planner, Paul, who's in prison. They're worried about Epaphroditus, the guy they sent, because he got so sick he almost died on that trip. Um, they're worried, of, yeah, who knows what else they're worried about. But Paul looks at them and he urges them to not worry. And why does he, why does he say that? Because when we worry, it robs us of our joy. He says, if you want to re- rejoice in the Lord, and one of the best ways to do unto that end, stop worrying. Worrying is basically when we try to control things that are out of our control. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he tells us not to worry. He says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? But we love to try. Right? We want to get our hands around it and make, it, make life work for us. We love to try. But, but Paul says, don't be anxious. But he doesn't just say, hey, stop worrying about stuff. Because that... That would be hard. He actually tells us not only to not worry, but instead to pray. He tells us to replace worry with prayer. And now look, I don't want you to hear this. You can't hear this as some sort of like programmatic, um, magical, um, you know, pretty simple idea that all you need to do is replace worry with prayer. Now go get it. Like something a televangelist would say, you know. Like, and if you, if you find yourself in worry, replace it with prayer, brother. It's as simple as that. Send me money. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. 
Well, I guess we could say that is what he's saying, but it's not that simple. And I want you to think, I don't want you to hear it that way. Hear it for what it's meant to be, which is this. What is he saying? Um, What he's saying is that God is inviting you to talk to him. God is inviting you himself to bring your cares and your concerns to him. He wants you to have a real relationship with him because he cares about you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What an amazing truth and invitation that is. Right? Think about that. That the God of space and time, the God that made you and everything you've ever seen or known or thought about, that that God wants you to talk to him to bring your concerns and your cares to Him because He cares about them. Because He really does love you. There's an old uh, Saturday Night Live skit that I, I went back and watched today to make sure I remembered correctly. And it's really, it's, it's really hard to watch. It's sad from a Christian perspective. But Sally Field plays a, uh, a Christian housewife who, for some reason, has a really thick southern accent, but whatever. And she prays about everything. Everything. And as she's going about her day praying about everything, Jesus, played by Phil Hartman, shows up. And he shows up in her kitchen and he basically tells her, it would be really helpful if you would just pray about kind of the important things. Like, you know, matters of life and death and kind of the bigger issues and then he says, you know, she, well, she says, I'm confused. What do you mean? He says, you know, maybe not things like, dear Jesus, please help this rice not to get so sticky. And dear Jesus, please be with me while I'm vacuuming the stairs and stuff like that. And it's clear throughout the whole thing that Jesus is really annoyed with, the, with those, and this is in quotes, silly prayers. And look, the, the audience laughs because that's what we picture Jesus to be like. I think that's just kind of default. That's what we would picture Jesus to be like. Who would want to hear that? Who would want to deal with those sorts of things? Why would he care? Let me give you this illustration. I can remember, you know, from being really, really young, I can remember my dad saying something like this to me a fair amount. Uh, Anytime I would ask him something like this, like, Dad, do you you like G.I. Joe? Because, you know, I'm in a G.I. Joe. Was we'll get. Do you like GI Joe? And I can remember my dad saying this again about lots of times, saying, looking at me and saying, you know, I love you. And if you like GI Joe, I like GI Joe too. I like what you like because I love you. All right, that's it. That's the picture. That's the picture that we need to have. The Saturday Night Live skit radically misses what's going on. It radically misses the whole picture of prayer because it misses the fact that Jesus actually loves you. That He really does care about you. And that He wants you to bring your concerns and your worries to Him. He cares about what you care about. 
in uh, youth group days many, many moons ago, um, I asked one time as we were finishing up, I asked for prayer requests, and a little sister of one of our students, uh, she wasn't even really, you know, she wasn't in the group. Parents were there to pick up the older brother, and she just kind of wandered up. And she said, um, will you pray for my cat? He's sick. And some of the older guys in the youth group kind of laughed. And, you know, one of them said, like, I'm pretty sure God has some other thing, you know, some bigger things to worry about than your cat, right? And the cat was the first thing I prayed for. Why? Because God cares about little girls' cats. He does. Why? Because God cares about little girls. And he cares about college students. He cares about you. He cares about me. So what do you worry about? What are you anxious over? Are you anxious about finding a job after graduation? Are you anxious about your schoolwork and getting your assignments in on time and your grades? Are you anxious about your money? Are you going to be able to make it to the end? Are you anxious? Are you worried about your parents staying together? Are you worried, are you worried about the election? Are you worried about your health? What is it for you? And look, what I want you to see is that God cares about those things because he cares about you. He cares about your test. He cares about the boy that you like. He cares about whatever it is that you care about because he cares about you. And he wants you to bring those things. He doesn't want you to worry about them. He wants, them, he wants you to bring them to him. I think we could say it this way. In other words, instead of worrying about those things, you get to worry to God about those things, in a sense. Talk to God about why you're worried. It might help you get to the, the heart of your worry. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, a guy named Ricky Jones, says, he says, pray messy. Pray messy. And what he means by that is that if you find yourself praying and you find your mind wandering, he says, pray about what your mind wandered to because that's probably what your heart is concerned about. That's why your mind wandered there. And Jesus cares about that. Pray about that. Bring it to him. And notice that Paul says it will bring a peace beyond understanding. That as we do that, it will bring a peace that's beyond understanding. And look, I'm going to be real honest. I don't completely, I, I don't, I'm not really sure what that means. But it sounds great, doesn't it? And it at least, in part of it, means beginning to trust that, that the only one that can actually do something about the things that we're worried about cares about it more than you do. And you can bring it to him. Even in the midst of real life worries like due dates and interviews and whatever else. And, and find some joy in that. Find some peace in that. Alright, so thirdly and finally, uh, Paul, in telling us how to rejoice, calling us to rejoice, he tells us not to worry. But then verses 8 through 9, he tells us to think. Let's look at that for just a minute. He tells us to think. Uh, He basically says, look, you need to think about what you think about. We could call it meta-thinking. Because what we think about, in a sense, is two things. It reveals who we are, but it also, what we think about, it shapes who we are. And one of the ways that we're going to find, you're going to find that you're attacked, that you're, you're, you're tempted to not stand firm, is in what you think about. 
Where does your mind go? And so Paul calls us to think about good things. I think that's a fair summation of it. He says, focus your mind on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And the verb that he uses is one of continual action. Continue to think on these things. And I think basically what he's telling us is to train our minds to think about that kind of stuff. Because look, no matter who you are, we're all sinners. And your mind, our mind, is not going to naturally go to things that are pure and lovely and just. They're going to, it's naturally going to go the opposite. Our minds are going to naturally go to things that are vulgar and impure and unjust and not honorable. And so I want you to take just a second and think about what you think about. What is it? What do you think about, especially when, you, um, when nothing else is going on, which we don't like and we don't do a whole lot of. But when, it's quiet, when you're quiet, I mean, sometimes it's almost literally just in the shower. But what do you daydream about when your mind gets to float off? What do you think about? And I have a feeling, you know, what do you think? Maybe you think about, oftentimes it, you think about getting back at that person. Um, you think about some scenario where everybody else looks not as good and you come out the hero. Uh, maybe you think, what do you think about when you walk in a room like this or a room with other people in it? You begin to size people up, and you, you probably size people up. Or I know you size people up. I do it. Everybody does it. How do you do it? You know, maybe it's based on uh, how you know how attractive people are, uh, who who you think the cool people are, um, how you know what year people are, whatever it is. But we size people up. We have impure thoughts about people, sexually impure, and in, in, in every way impure. Uh, we tend, I think we tend to think a lot about, what do I get out of this? How does this benefit me? And, and things like that will eat us away. It'll eat away at you. And Paul says, train your mind to think on good things. I heard a psychologist say one time that synapses, right, in your brain, synapses that fire together, wire together. See what he's saying? That that you really can train your brain, in a sense. That when you think on good things, your brain can, it, it, it shapes who you are. This is going to be a super nerdy example, okay? Let's just say that on the front end. So I love to play, uh, I love word games. And so uh, games like a Boggle, or like the Word Jumble, stuff like that, you know. Um, I lo- I've done it for a long time. And I've played a lot of these word games, right? Like, you know, where you figure out, you've got a bunch of letters, you try to make words. So much so now that a lot of times, like if I see a word, like on a billboard or whatever, my mind just starts making other words out of the letters in that word. It just happens now. I've kind of trained my brain that way. Again, I know that's nerdy. It's okay. I will smoke you and boggle, by the way. Um... Now look, this isn't just the, Paul's not saying like, hey, this is the power of positive thinking, right? Think on good things and you'll be a good person, let's pray, all right. He's, but the power of positive thinking is actually hitting on something that's, on a truth that's actually bigger than it realizes. It is actually onto something. So we're supposed to think on good things. 
So what are they? How do we know what's true and honorable? And the answer and such, and the answer is the scripture. Right? What God says is good and lovely and commendable, that's what we're to think on. We're to think on the goodness of God, his mercy, his grace in the gospel, how he's loved people, who he is, what he's done. But look, here's what I want you to see. That doesn't mean that all you should think about is Jesus and God. And if your mind wanders onto something else, you're in sin. That's not what he's saying. If Paul's saying, if he meant that, that's what he would have said. But really, he's getting at how we think about everything. In other words, it's not that we size up everyone when we walk in the room and kind of filter what's going on and who people are. It's how we do it. So in other words, we're called, when that happens, we're called to, what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord is to to work to train your brain. Not to size people up by how attractive they are or what they can do for you or whatever else. But to work to train your brain to see, see things through the lens of, of truth and justice. To begin to look and see people as, as built in the image of God. As worthy of, of knowing them. Not to see people as competition or problems or obstacles, but maybe as opportunities to serve, opportunities to know them. I've had three parents in the last two weeks ask me, um, can we meet because I've got a prospective student that's thinking about coming to Baylor, and uh, you know, can, can I, the parent, can I, I'd like to meet with you sometime. And I'm going to just be honest, my first thought that just like flashes in my mind and my heart is yes, because you might be a potential supporter one day. I'm going to say yes to you, because you might help my ministry somehow. And I'm, I have to work to train my brain. When that flashes in my mind... To remember, no, that's not what this should look like. Right? This is an opportunity to, to serve somebody. Do something helpful. can help them. Not to see people as a means to an end. It means that I, I work to train my brain. We work to train our brains to see things around us in light of God's truth. Um, to see things in light of, of the beauty of God. Right? That coffee drink that you like so much, I don't, but you do. That's a beautiful gift from God. Train your brain to think about it like that. Work at that. It doesn't have to, God did not have to make it taste good. He didn't have to make anything taste good, but He did. That other people's abilities are beautiful examples of God at work, gifting people. Right? They're not something to be jealous of, but we train our brains to think, I see the beauty of God in that in you. And certainly it means that we pay attention to what we reflect on and what we pour into our minds and what we meditate on. And certainly that means that we need to reflect on and spend time meditating on God's Word. All right, we've got to end in, in two minutes ago. It's going to be hard to do. But let me end with this thought. In case you're thinking that I've made that sound either super easy or super hard, right? Like, hey, here's all you do, which could be really hard. I want you to see what Paul says. Two thoughts real quick. One, he's speaking to Christians, okay? When he says, uh, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's speaking to Christians. So in other words, he's not telling you how to get God to love you. You see that? He's, this is not the how you get in the kingdom. This is two Christians that know they're only there by grace. 
And to those people, the second thing I want you to notice that he says is practice. That this is something, standing firm, working at that, it takes practice. It takes a lifetime of doing it over and over and over. Just like learning to play the piano or baseball or whatever it is you do. And last thought. What is it that he wants you... What is it that you've seen in him and learned in him and heard in him that he wants you to practice? Yes, in one sense, it's, the, it's doing good things, right? But ultimately, what is it that we practice and pound into our hearts over and over? It's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus loves you so much that he lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death that, that you and I deserve to die. And he gives you his righteousness for free. And so when you find yourself working to stand firm, and yet you find, yourself, um, you find yourself worrying about who knows what, or you find yourself at odds with that person again, or you find yourself thinking those terrible thoughts and not on goodness again, it means that that's when you, you put it into practice. You put the gospel into practice and remind yourself That Jesus died for that. Jesus died for that thing. And he took it for you. He bore the punishment for you because he loves you. And notice what he says you'll get out of that. What happens? The God of peace will be with you. Now notice what he says. Not just the peace of God, which he said earlier. But now he says the God of peace. The God himself that gives the peace, will be with you. And that's good news. That's good news that will bring joy. And he invites you to take it for free. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, that you would be with us, that you would love us in such a way to care about what we care about, that you would shape us to make us more like you. Uh, What a beautiful truth. Would you cause it to change us? Cause us to know you and stand firm in you. We pray it in your name. Amen.